A week ago, at this moment, I was in a very different place. I was in Berlin teaching at the conservative rabbinic seminary there. And straddling over the Shabbat that I was there, I was invited to speak on Shabbat morning at the Oranienburgerstrasse synagogue. It was built in 1886, in the heart of Berlin's Jewish area, an ascendant, hopeful, prosperous Jewish community. And the synagogue soars into the sky with these beautiful, remarkable golden domes that you can spot almost from anywhere in the city. In 1920, Albert Einstein even played a violin concert there. But 73 years after being built, it entered into history in an unusual way. As Kristallnacht engulfed Jews throughout Germany, as their homes and schools and businesses and synagogues were targeted for destruction on that evening, the Oranienburgerstrasse Schule was set on fire as well. And the reports tell us that people left their homes to watch the spectacle of it going up in flames, but not the Jews. They dare not open their doors on that evening. And just as it seemed that it would join the fate of so many other Jewish places on that evening, suddenly, a district police officer, a man named Otto Belgart, arrived and drew his pistol, ordering the arsonists away and the firefighters to come and douse the flames. And to this date, there's debate over why he did that and why did he place himself in great danger to save just a building. Not a small amount of ink has been spilled in people trying to figure out the why of his actions. Because despite Belgard's actions on that evening, during the war, the building was seriously damaged by Allied bombing. And only decades later was it to be rebuilt and rededicated. So standing there on that morning a week ago, it left me very emotional. Generally, because being Jewish and being in Germany is always an emotional and complicated thing, but particularly because one and a half kilometers from where I stood on that Shabbat morning, my father's cousins were dragged out of their homes on 10 Frankfurt Grosse. On that day in, eight, in October the 18th, 1941, Irene Flansreich and her one-year-old daughter, Marion, were loaded onto Berlin Transport F and sent to Lodge, where they were murdered in Chelmno. Five kilometers where I stood in that morning, other cousins, Selma and Moses Flansreich and their son, Gunther, were dragged out of their home at number 57 Motstrasse and were sent to Lodge in the same transport, where they eventually were murdered, which is to say, that being there was both easy and hard, hard because of history and loss, and easy because I believe that our emphatic, unapologetic presence there is the only and the best answer to what was done. But to this day, even 80 years later, the questions will not go away. Why should Jews be there in the first place? People often thought, I can't believe they said that there are Jews who actually live in Germany why have anything others would say to do with them and that, that being Germany and Germans? Now, growing up in New York as I did, we were probably the only Jewish family that had an Italian doctor. Now, all of our Italian neighbors all bragged about the Jewish lawyers and accountants and doctors, but ours was Italian. 
On the surface, it seemed funny, but to know him was to understand why. Dr. Thomas Spinelli was a bright, caring, warm, and gentle man who once asked me, how is it that Jews can drive German cars? He confided to me that he would never buy one. The northern Italian village where his family came from had been brutally destroyed by the Wehrmacht in the Second World War. This kind of question drew a little closer to me when I got my first razor. It was just after my bar mitzvah, and someone gifted me with an electric one because religious Jews do not use straight-edge blades on their face. It's an ancient Jewish law. The electric razor that I was gifted was by Krupps, a German company. Not just a German crump, a company, but Krupps was part of the German industrial military war machine. My father took one look at it and said, we're going to get you a Remington. Now, I didn't know the difference between a Krupp and a Remington, but not being allowed to use the Krupp made me want it to want it even more. But make no mistake, this is a debate that has many legs to it. In 1956, the State of Israel concluded an agreement on war reparations with Germany. In essence, the German government was going to pay the Jewish state for the destruction of Jewish life, Jewish enslavement, and Jewish property. It also ignited a firestorm in Israel. But the Jewish state had gone from a population of 680,000 in 1948 to 1 1.8 million in 1956. That's nearly triple the population in eight years. And the sheer weight and cost of absorbing all of those immigrants while maintaining the defense necessary for that besieged small state left it precarious and weak and broke. Still, the question of whether to take or not take the money cut a deep, deep line in the young country. A young Menachem Begin called it blood money and treason against the dead. Then Prime Minister Ben-Gurion said that they had no choice. They needed the money and they needed it urgently. So they took it. But the questions haven't gone away. Like, why take the money even if you need it? And like, why would I go to Berlin? Because if it is true, and I believe it is, that whenever Jews go to Europe, they see ghosts, then to go to Berlin is closer to walking with them. After all, it is ground zero of our greatest nightmare. How do you listen to German being spoken in the streets? Walk the very streets where the Nazi parades were held and not say to yourself, I'm in the wrong place. In some ways, the opening words of the Torah reading tells us something very complex in a simple way. You see it because it begins by declaring and God spoke to Moses on Sinai saying, and this left generations of rabbis bewildered. And that's because they were bewildered. That's because we are reading the book which comes after the Israelites were standing at Sinai after leaving Egypt. Meaning that the revelation at Sinai happens years earlier. And yet we read this morning of God speaking to Moses at Sinai. This is the third book of the Torah. And it is in the second book that we read about God speaking at Sinai. And the Meda, the big question which hovers all of this, 
is either you're there or you're not there. Either you're standing at Mount Sinai hearing God or you're somewhere else because you cannot be in two places at the same time. And the answer that I have always been drawn to is the one by one of our greatest biblical commentators, Rashi, who lived in Worms about a thousand years ago that the entire Torah was given at Sinai, he says. But the words given there did not end there. Like, like the echo in the desert, the message of Sinai is carried over time to every generation. And saying the words of our foundational covenant carries from Sinai to every generation is saying what binds every Jew is that we have a collective history. It says that we are made from that which comes from this law and this language and our memories and our love and our concerns. To be a Jew is to consider yourself to be part of that collective story. But while we are a people, we are a people, but we are also people. Because while we share a collective history and a collective destiny, we do not share collective responsibility, which is to say that every person stands on their own merit of their record on this world. A bad deed by one Jew cannot color every Jew, just as the good deed of one person is not yours either. So this past Wednesday, I was welcomed into Berlin's only Jewish high school, the Mendelssohn School, named after the German Jewish philosopher Moses Mendelssohn, it has a near, a near unbroken 250 year history of educating Jewish children. And as I darted between the lines of kippah wearing children running in and out of their classrooms, noticed that there were pictures of nearly 30 German Jews who won the Nobel Prize. Many of them you can list with these, by the way. Planck, Einstein, Ehrlich, Warburg, Sachs. But we can also do the same with anti-Semites, right? The list is long and dispiriting, and they come easy to the tongue. Roel Dahl, Degas, Rudyard Kipling, Chesterton, Theodore Dreiser, Voltaire, Justinian, Chekhov, St. Ambrose, Robert Lowell, Andre Gide, Chaucer, Toynbee, Juvenal, the list goes on and on. I told some of the children that morning that those pictures of the German Jews who were Nobel Prize laureates are only inspiration to make something of their lives, to remember that the world is not what was, but only built on what was. The story of Jews in Berlin begins with 50 wealthy Austrian-German Jewish families who were invited by the German King Frederick in the early 1700s with the hope that they would bring their wealth, business, and connections to a struggling city. But it was all on the condition of collective responsibility. Frederick told them that if one Jew was found guilty of wrongdoing, that each and every one of them would be held accountable as if they had done it themselves. Stereotypes are for lazy imaginations. But Hitler had many, many willing accomplices. And the Germany today is filled with that difficult recognition. But are the people who live there today, many of them grandchildren and great-grandchildren of those perpetrators, 
Are they, to be, are they to be held guilty for the sins of those who came before them? They have a collective history, but no one should ever bear the burden of collective responsibility. Otherwise, we are all condemned to a past and none of us will have a future. But back to our first question. The shul I spoke in last week, how it was spared on Kristallnacht in 1938. People have wondered why Otto Belkart risked his life and the safety of his family to spare the synagogue. At first, some speculated that maybe he was concerned for the non-Jewish homes in the area, that it might get caught up in the flames, destroy their homes too. Or maybe some thought it was because he wanted to preserve the files of Jewish families who were members of the synagogue for the eventual Nazi deportations. But later on it was discovered that Bogart was a member of the Nazi party, but he loathed the Nazis. He had close, warm relationships with his Jewish neighbors and joined the party only to keep his job as a policeman, but did whatever he could, whenever he could, to get in the way of their wretched plans. In 1996, when that synagogue was rebuilt and rededicated, his family was invited to attend. But the ancient rabbi said it in a much better way. A human king, they said, stamps coins making each one alike. But the king of kings creates every human being and none are the same. Shabbat Shalom.